Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, you are either blessed or saddled with listening to all three of us co-hosts. If the dad joke quotient gets just a little too high, we're working on an app for listeners that will allow you to choose either Sweet Silence, Sounds of a Baby Cooing, or your spouse's voice, if you are married, saying, you are right, honey, I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in, in response to requests from listeners, today we want to talk about infertility. Since this is a major aspect of Chris's practice, we luckily did not have to go very far to find a reliable expert. You know the, you know the, defi- the internationally accepted definition of an expert. You know yes, that, right? Chris. It's someone who lives more than 50 miles away and has very cool slides. Oh, and you know, <laughs> our listeners are just not going to be able to see your really cool slides, but I'm sure you're great at painting verbal pictures, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. So we've got a lot of questions we're going to address that hopefully the audience is interested in. Uh, Before we dive into the questions, we're going to just have an abbreviated first segment here and go right to the medical trivia question of the day, which deals with, not surprisingly, fertility instead of infertility. And we went all the way downtown to the World Bank for 2018 data. According to... Current statistics, the average woman of childbearing age must bear 2.1 children so that the next generation has as many people as the current generation. Of course, this number takes into account life expectancy, so countries with shorter life expectancies require a higher fertility rate to replace their population. Two-part question. First one, out of 200 ranked countries and territories in 2018, how many of these 200 ranked countries were replacing themselves through birth, through birth of people who lived in those countries, not including immigration. And the second part of the question, the 2018 world fertility rate was 2.4. So the world was more than replacing itself. The country of Niger in Africa had the highest fertility rate in South Korea, the lowest. What were the recorded fertility rates in 2018 for these two extreme countries. You'll have to t- stay tuned till the end of the show to find out, but it'll be worth it. Here from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor here on Redeemer Radio and EWTN. Today we are talking to our very own Dr. Chris Stroud about infertility, something that he does a lot of. Chris, can you? edify our listeners by explaining your background and experience in treating infertility problems. Why should we trust you? (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) Uh, I've I've been uh, doing this OBGYN game for a long time. I started right back when, about the time electricity came on the scene, (laughs) Uh, that's when I began. Um, So I've always been interested in fertility to a degree, but about eight, nine years ago, I really got interested uh, as, as part of a uh, really a, a medical conversion to wanting to practice in a way that's consistent with the teachings of the Holy Church. And that's when my passion for fertility was, was really born, pun intended. Um, so I, I'm a certified medical consultant with the Creighton Fertility Model that we reference a fair amount here. Uh, and many, many years of practice and uh, learning, more learning than practice um, in OBGYN. <laughs> Uh, but as you kind of mentioned, a great deal of my practice and professional energy is dedicated towards, uh, towards fertility. So, Chris, I, I think we should probably define what do you mean by infertility? You know, you say a lot of people think, oh, we've tried for a year, no baby, we're infertile. What is the right way for couples who are listening to think about it? Yeah, this is one of those many areas that I would find myself disagreeing with the American College of OBGYN, seem to disagree with them on about everything. Um, <laughs> this, just, this just being another example. But the standard answer that obstetricians, gynecologists will give women is try for a year. So a classic example is a woman is not getting pregnant. A few months have gone by. She gets in to see her doctor. Her doctor says, come back to see me in a year if you're not pregnant. They come back in a year or maybe 14, 16 months because getting appointments can be challenging. And then they start something. Now they're, now they're rapidly approaching two years 
uh, of infertility. And that's nothing but a waste of good time. I mean, one of the takeaways on infertility has to be the concept that time is not the friend of fertility. It, it just isn't. You know, we're at our most fertile and our stupidest in adolescence, you know. Uh, and every, for the next show. Yeah. <laughs> one, of the, one of those gets better, the other one doesn't. But, you know, um, and so for, literally every year, particularly of a woman's life from from adolescence on, her fertility naturally declines. So putting somebody off for a year is doing nothing uh, but trying to avoid helping them. Some statistical things that we know for couples that are using a fertility awareness method like the Creighton fertility model, that is to say when they know that they're fertile in a given cycle, if they're engaging in the marital embrace, I think our listeners know what that is. I don't have to tell them to move their children away from the, the, uh, the podcast. Um, about 85% of them will be pregnant in three cycles. Uh, and it only wow. goes up to, it gets to 90% by six cycles. So I usually say to couples, assuming that you have been intimate on a semi-regular basis, there are actually people that study what that means. Um, you know, four cycles, five cycles, you should be pregnant. If you're not, we should be talking. Um, so that's the definition that, that I try to encourage people to use and to cast aside that wait a year. And so if a doctor that they see for their infertility says, oh, you haven't tried long enough, they should just find another doctor. They should quickly run, don't walk to the nearest exit I, I uh, think because you're, you're not in the right place. That, that's something that I think would be worth discussing a little bit. What What is the big deal with ACOG and why is so many people, so many obstetricians, they're not on board here because I've, I've met a lot of patients who, you know, there's, there's the OB in town, they delivered their friends, their friends see this OB, really nice person, um, says come back in a year. Is it really important to go find somebody who does either the NAPRO technology or appreciates this um, healthy view of fertility? You know, I would argue that it is, and that can be a tough thing. You know, we've talked about this in other settings, to try to find another physician for something can be really tough. Yes. Uh, you know, there's a personal relationship often, and maybe you're a small community. Maybe you go to the, the same church. I mean, it can be challenging. Uh, but on these important matters, sometimes that, that's what you have to do. Uh, and today, with the internet at your fingertips, quite literally, it, you don't have to wonder if there's somebody else. You should go find someone. Where, where's the best place for people to start? If you know, they don't know where to look. A nice, a nice uh, starting point is a website. It's called One More Soul, S-O-U-L, uh, written out, O-N-E-M-O-R-E, onemoresoul.com. And that has a search box in the upper right-hand corner. And you can search by zip code, by state, by city. And it will at least give you people that self-designate um, as people that are interested in natural family planning only approaches to, to female reproductive health. And, and that's a great place to start. Of course, Facebook can be helpful and other social media platforms. Uh, sometimes your parish priest can be really helpful. Uh, I get a lot of referrals from priests, which is sort of interesting that it happens that way. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of ways to find someone. You know, another an, an issue is uh, the specialty of reproductive endocrinology. We've talked about this before. Uh, that's one of the sanctioned, if you will, subspecialties of OBGYN. Um, and they do IVF and intrauterine insemination. Uh, and the things that we as, uh, as authentically pro-life people uh, can't and will not and should not participate in. And so it can feel like, well, that's all there is to offer. And, and they told me it was IVF or nothing. I can't accept nothing, so what do I do? Um, and so a place like One More Soul uh, can help find you a, a, an alternative opinion. So couple hasn't been able to conceive in three to five cycles. They see you. What's the basis for your next steps? Yeah. So an important thing about fertility is understanding uh, a concept that uh, as a woman, she is designed to be pregnant. She is masterfully created to be pregnant. She could choose to be a soccer player, but she's made to be pregnant. <laughs> if she and her husband are engaging in the marital embrace and she's not pregnant, there is something wrong by definition. 
that doesn't sound controversial to me because I say it all the time, but it actually is in, in, in OBGYN. But if you're not pregnant, there is something wrong. Uh, the job is to find out what's wrong. When you go to an IVF clinic, they say, you're not pregnant, I'll fix it, I'll make you pregnant. And I always like to say, if, if that were, say, a cardiologist, and you went to the cardiologist and you said, I get chest pain when I'm on the treadmill. And the cardiologist said, it's no problem. You take some Vicodin before you get on the treadmill and you, <laughs> and you won't have chest pain. Most savvy you know, medical shoppers would say, hold on a minute, but isn't there something wrong with my heart? And in this analogy, the cardiologist would say, you didn't ask me what was wrong with your heart. You asked me to fix your chest pain. I fixed it, pay at the door. You know, um, That approach would never be acceptable in any medical specialty outside of gynecology. Uh, it's sad, but that's what's happened with the advent of, of IVF in the 70s and 80s. But I would argue uh, what you need is a diagnosis. That is to say, why are we not getting pregnant? So we call that a disease-based or a diagnosis-based approach to fertility care. And there's, there's three key questions you ask, right? There are three yeah. key aspects to this. Yeah, so think back to high school biology class and the movies they made us watch, right? Um, <laughs> I close my eyes. <laughs> category one. Yeah, the homeschool movies. <laughs> category one, is there a sperm, right? doesn't have to be 500 million, but there has to be one sperm. Category two, is there an egg? Is the woman ovulating? Category three, can those two parties get together? And that's really all there is. At the end of the day, we're always asking, was there a sperm? Was there an egg? Did the two have a chance to get together? Uh, each of those has nice sub, sub, sub headings, but that's the list that we're running, trying to figure out anything wrong in those categories, what's wrong, and then fix whatever we find. So Chris, what, what are the main problems with that? What are the main things that you do find? Yeah, you know, um, I would break it down into those three categories, sort of. So category one is their sperm. That's male factor issues. About 20% of the time, if a couple is not conceiving, it's a male-only issue. Uh, so not that common. Um, on the other hand, about 50% of the time, when we get a seminal, seminal fluid analysis on a man, we find something wrong. Now, maybe not the big smoking gun of he has zero sperm. That's actually very uncommon. Uh, but there being just a little something wrong, flip of the coin, 50% of the time. But so um, male factor, about 20% um, or, or more. Category two, ovulation problems. Is the woman ovulating? Does she ovulate regularly? Does she ovulate sporadically? Uh, does she have another condition like thyroid dysfunction or adrenal gland dysfunction or pituitary gland dysfunction that's mucking up her ovulation? Or when she ovulates, is it not a very good ovulation? All ovulations are not created equally. And sometimes they're just not good. And we can do things to make them better. And then in that third category, uh, mechanical structural things that prevent sperm and egg from meeting. Number one suspect in that category, always endometriosis. Yes, the woman could be born without fallopian tubes or they could be damaged from an infection maybe that she never knew she had. But the number one thing in that third category is endometriosis. So male factor, ovulation challenges, and tubal or structural challenges, those, that's the top three and 90 plus percent of the problem. So when a woman comes into your office with her husband, um, what are the first steps that you do? Is there some form of testing that they go through either in your office, in the hospital or elsewhere? Yeah, well, we're going to work our way through that list. Um, sometimes we'll prioritize that list in, in a different order. Uh, you know, for instance, if there was something in her physical exam or her medical history that suggested a category three problem, say, for instance, painful menses or painful sure. intimacy, we might think, hmm, could be endometriosis. Let's go there first. Uh, but in general, we're just going to work that list. So a very common thing would be a comprehensive look at her reproductive hormones. That's blood testing. Probably a seminal fluid analysis with the husband. And we should get back to that and talk about an ethical way to yes. achieve that in a minute. Yes. Um, and those two bodies of work are going to take us a cycle or two to get done. Then we will, in most cases, have them start charting their menstrual cycles using the Creighton Fertility Model, because that's really the software 
that operates our system, you might say. It's our language. And everything we do is going to be based off things we see on that Creighton chart. Uh, and then what we learn in those two steps is going to drive our direction after that. But we're always asking those same three questions. Uh, now, so, you mentioned Creighton model, but you're also affiliated with another model, Couple to Couple League. If somebody's been charting by any method, are those helpful when they come in? Oh, absolutely. All of the fertility awareness models uh, are helpful. The more data, the better. Uh, the Creighton model is probably best known for couples who are having a problem. Uh, and it's very common for teaching couples in the Couples to Couples League, when they identify a chart problem, they will commonly refer to a Creighton medical consultant, uh, not uncommon at all. Very good. Uh, but whether they're using the Marquette method or the, the Billings method or the Symptothermic method or the Creighton method, they're all very helpful. Uh, now, in my particular practice and in, in physicians like me, we typically will transition them to the Creighton model because it's our language of comfort. Um, but that's not to say the other models are in any way inferior. You know, and, and Chris, you kind of alluded to it. I felt a couple of our listeners on the other end bristle when you talked about a semen analysis. <laughs> um, are we on You're the right so channel? Sensitive, Andrew. I don't know. I just, I felt it. Um, and so yeah. could you, could you dive into that and explain how that can be done without, you know, compromising their faith? Yeah, it, it's remarkable how many men, not necessarily based on uh, religious opposition, will not begin the discussion with their wife because they've seen the sitcoms and they've heard the stories and they are actually pretty repulsed by the idea of, of uh, and forgive the frankness, but you go to a fertility clinic, the man is told to go in the bathroom, he's asked, what's his favorite style of pornography? Oh. And he, he's told to masturbate to obtain a specimen. Um, and that's fair that often the point where the man walks out and the evaluation is over. Um, so not surprisingly, I hope we don't do that. Um, so we have a special kit for couples that involves a, a special condom. It's latex free, talc free, lubricant free. They're impossible to find. So we buy them by the case. If anybody ever hacks into my Amazon account, uh, they're going to wonder why the Catholic guy, you know, buys bushel baskets of condoms. But um, so we take this condom and then we do something very important to it. We tell them to take a needle and to punch three little holes in the end of the condom. One for the father, one for the son, and one for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> uh, they engage in the natural marital embrace in their home, away from their fertile window. Uh, and then they carefully empty the contents of that condom into a cup, take the cup to the lab uh, for testing. The U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops has actually, actually issued a nice letter that says that is an ethical and appropriate way uh, to obtain a semen analysis. So if nothing else, listeners, please make your husbands know that just because maybe you need to have him evaluated, it's not going to involve something that's unethical and sinful. Because it's still allowing the potential natural outcome of the, the marital act because some of the sperm get through those holes. Presumably. And it's also done outside of the fertile window, which is just an added uh, bit of protection for the couple to know that they're not unintentionally preventing a pregnancy. Very good. Uh, how often in your infertility evaluation treatment does a woman require surgery? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say um, probably 50% of the time. Uh, wow. I could be wrong. It could be more than that. But mm -hmm. endometriosis, it's public enemy number one when it comes to fertility. And you can only diagnose endometriosis by doing a diagnostic procedure called a laparoscopy, where a small camera is placed through a tiny little incision around the woman's belly button and look to see if there's endometriosis. Um, and often, you know, we work our way through that list. It's the last thing and one of the most important. Um, but it's very, very common. Tubal damage from infection and other things is also very, very common. But uh, I would say at least half the time we find ourselves looking inside, finding endometriosis, and then surgically treating it for the couple to get pregnant. So if half the time you need to do something surgically, what percent of those are endometriosis and what percent are other things you have to do? Oh, that's a good question. I'd need to sort of crunch the numbers, but I would have to say 
endometriosis 90 plus percent of the time. Oh my goodness. So in the general population of women of childbearing age, what percentage of women have endometriosis? Well, it's, it's essentially impossible to get a hold of that number because you have to look to find it. Uh, and so many young girls are placed on birth control pills, 13, 14, 16 years old, because they have horribly painful periods. Uh, the OBGYN puts them on birth control pills. Their pain goes away. So everybody's happy. The mom's happy. The, the daughter's happy. Uh-huh. Then I meet them in their mid to late 20s. When they're married, they've stopped taking the pill. Their pain's back. And by the way, they're not getting pregnant. And we find endometriosis that she's had maybe for a decade or more. So they've been on narcotics for chest pain, essentially. That's a great analogy. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I heard it from a doctor I really respect. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and what is, what can be done for the male factor problems? How familiar are you with that? Yeah, you you know, uh, I think Andrew and I probably share this and that we become uh, sort of de facto urologists. Um, uh, Sadly, there are great exceptions, but many, many of our urology colleagues just don't have a passion for treating male fertility unless it's a surgical problem. And there are some surgical uh, male factors that, you know, that require a surgical approach. But many, many cases, it's nutritional supplements like CoQ10 or L-carnitine or simple vitamins and nutrients like that. Sometimes it's antibiotics for chronic prostatitis. Uh, sometimes it's the drug Clomid. Which most of our most of yes. our listeners know for uh, women to make them ovulate. Clomid also makes men make our version of follicles, which we call sperm. Um, sometimes we use the drug tamoxifen, which is a breast cancer drug uh, wow. that raises a man's sperm count. And then the most famous one probably is the blood pressure medicine lisinopril. Uh, we use that to raise you know sperm counts and uh, other aspects of the semen. So there's great things we can do. It's simple. It doesn't usually involve any sharp objects cutting anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Good to know. Chris, we've been talking a lot about your practice and how you attack these problems. For people who have not gone through it before, can you explain what the alternative or the secular version of infertility care would be? They would typically, uh, their OBGYN would say, "Hmm, we don't know why you're pregnant. Uh, Let's give you some Clomid, which is a drug that, you know, makes you ovulate course, if she's already ovulating, that's a waste of good Clomid. Um, that would be like you saying in a family medicine setting to a patient who tells you they don't feel good and you say, let's try some blood pressure medicine uh, without, <laughs> without ever checking their blood pressure. Hope know. it helps. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it might. It's very common for OBGYNs to give them a few rounds, as we say, of Clomid. If that doesn't work, refer them to a reproductive endocrinologist, which are the IVF clinics. They will typically try um, intrauterine inseminations or so-called artificial inseminations for two to three cycles. And if that doesn't work, they'll say IVF. Uh, Many, many patients will say they felt like the minute they started that process, they were on a conveyor belt that led to IVF and there was no exit. And that's a, that's a common feeling. How, how does NAPRO technology and kind of your practice compare to IVS as far as efficacy? Does one work better than the other? Yeah, it's, it, it's a great question. You know, the, the success rates of IVF, it's a very controversial topic. They have to report that to a website um, at the CDC that's publicly available to look up Clinic A versus Clinic B success numbers. So they live by their success numbers. And if you look at an infertility website, you'll see some really high numbers like 50% success rates. The challenge with those numbers is a lot of that 50%, they didn't need IVF to get pregnant. That is to say, they would have been pregnant maybe on their own. They certainly could have been pregnant if they had seen a disease-based approach or a NAPRO technology specialist. They would have been pregnant without IVF. So it isn't really fair to let them stay in the IVF statistics. So it's deceivingly successful on the IVF side. The other thing is they don't allow many women that are in their later years in their reproductive phase, maybe in their mid-40s, they don't allow those women to enter into IVF cycles because it'll destroy their statistics. So the whole statistical manipulation thing is very tough to kind of get your, get your hands and your brain around. Um, the challenge we have on the NAPR technology side is we do so many things at one time 
it's hard to know who to give credit to. That is, I checked her tubes and got them open. Is that get the credit? I gave her a medication to solve her thyroid disease. Does that get the credit? You know, we don't know. So what I usually tell people is that uh, I gauge our success on the cards and the letters and the emails that come every week saying, we're pregnant, thank you for the help. Um, and that's a very common finding and that's what keeps us all going uh, in this specialty. We have covered very well so far what I might consider primary infertility. We're going to come back after the break and talk about something we might consider secondary infertility. Those people who can achieve pregnancy, but they don't make it through your delivery. We'll be back with more of Dr. Chris Stroud and his wisdom after the break here on Dr. Doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. We're back with the second half of our interview with Chris Stroud about infertility. And in my life, my marriage with Sally, we initially had two early miscarriages before we ever had any children. And we were sweating it. We were nervous. We were like, gosh, are we going to be able to have have children? And, you know, we were wondering, should we see somebody or not? And, you know, thanks be to God, you know, with the third pregnancy, it you know, it took <laughs> and uh, and he's 27 years old now. But the, the question is, Chris, if somebody's in our situation, has two early miscarriages first trimester, you know, we know we were pregnant. At what point should they see a specialist like you? Yeah, good question. You know, I'll, I'll do like the politicians do and I'll take that and pivot to a different answer and come back to it. <laughs> um, but I mean, first and foremost, I, this is probably a good time to point out it, if you're talking to someone that's had a loss, you know, the most important thing you say to them is you've had a loss. And the reason you feel the way you feel is because you had a child that died. And uh, sadly, I don't think I've ever said that to a person where, you know, husband and wife both usually start crying because nobody said that to them. And they're wow. trying to figure out why do we feel so horrible if people have said, oh, you're young, it's a part of life, you'll have more kids, it'll be fine. And when you, when you sort of give them permission to feel the way that their heart's making them feel, things usually get better. Um, and so the, the first thing I say to that couple or to you is, hey, I'm sorry, you lost a child. It's going to hurt a long time. And if you think about it, it, it should. Uh, and, it, and it makes sense. Um, but then the next thing I like to say is, because it's how I think I use an analogy and I say, can you imagine if you went to a family physician, not like Dr. Mullally, but a different <laughs> one, and, and you said, you know, by the way, we had a toddler die last year. And the f physician said, oh, that's interesting. Well, if any more of your toddlers die, we really ought to look into it. <laughs> Maybe there's something wrong with your food service or something, you know. I, I don't um, think they'd come back. <laughs> yeah, I, I think they'd storm out of the place. Yet, sadly, in our profession, that's what gets said every day. So a couple like you, Tom, has a loss. They, they seek advice. And the physician says, oh, you're young. You'll be fine. You know, come back if you're not pregnant in a year, as we talked about earlier. That's, that's the wrong advice. So I personally start looking into causes of recurrent loss after one loss. Wow. Um, uh, because there are things that we can do that we can talk about uh, over some time together here. But, you know, if there's something simple that I can do after one, then I've saved the life of the second loss. Um, so why would I wait for two or three? Again, the American College of OBGYN says start evaluations after three losses. Uh, so when you have three kids in heaven, we'll start looking into keeping them on earth. That just doesn't make sense to most of us. Uh, and so after a loss, we start looking. Yeah. What, what types of things do you dive right into after somebody yeah. has a loss? So I like to think of four major categories of pregnancy loss. Uh, the first one, low progesterone. That's probably the easiest to wrap our brain around. Progesterone is what stabilizes the lining of the uterus. It, it makes it a sound foundation for the embryo to set up household in. If that foundation is unstable and shaky, 
then the pregnancy can be lost. So low progesterone is easy. We assume everybody's got it until we prove that they don't. So you call tomorrow, you're pregnant, we check your progesterone. That's easy. The second one, not so easy, it's the inherited genetic problems that we think lead to miscarriages. And there are three crazy names. One is called Factor Five. one is called MTHFR, and the other one is called PAI. I know, it's, it sounds like alphabet soup. But they're all examples of genetic mutations in the woman, and then depending on which one she has and how many copies of it, it may be contributing to her losses. And treating those can be as simple as taking what we used to call a baby aspirin, right? Or a mini dose, 81 milligram aspirin. Uh, and maybe a special form of folic acid called methylfolic acid. Something that simple could prevent another loss. The third category, a little more complicated, it involves our immune system. And cases where the immune system is actually attacking the pregnancy are autoimmune disorders. Everybody's heard of lupus. Lupus is an example of when the immune system inappropriately labels your own tissues as foreign and it, it attacks it with antibodies. Well, if it's attacking the pregnancy with antibodies, that could be a problem. That requires some blood testing to figure out. Uh, and the treatment can be as simple, again, as a baby aspirin. Sometimes the blood thinner heparin or Lovenox. And sometimes uh, the medication prednisone uh, or a low dose of that steroid. So not really complicated, not tough to manage. You just have to ask, ask those questions. And then the fourth and final category, I would call chromosomal abnormalities. And this is the one we don't like because we can't do anything about it. And if you think back again to high school biology class, the, the egg has all the genetic material necessary to make a human, except the last little part that the sperm brings. And so once the sperm penetrates the egg, all of that genetic material gets duplicated and then that one cell divides into two, and then four, and then eight, and 16, 32, and you're off to the races. Well, in those cases, those chromosomal losses, that initial duplication didn't go properly. And instead of being 46XY or 46XX, we find bizarre combinations like 70YY I saw recently. Um, so those are pregnancies that are quite literally doomed to be a loss from the moment of conception. You know, it's on my list one day uh, to ask our Lord, why would this be? I'm sure he'll say, <laughs> of all the things you could ask, you came up with that. But um, <laughs> Because it, it feels yeah. like it's a built-in error rate almost. And I'm, I'm not sure there's such a thing as a built-in error rate, but it sure feels that way. But that's on the list of things that we just don't understand. Uh, so we can't do anything about that category. The other three we can and do. So I can take your chances, hopefully, that were infinite before, after your first loss, and dramatically reduce those to only that second, that last category. Uh, and that's meaningful. And it's not at all uncommon that we see patients who've had five, seven, ten losses, and we find something simple, start them on a simple therapy, and they go on and have multiple normal, boring pregnancies. <laughs> you know, Chris, one of the things I'm, I'm thinking back to is in my training, spending time with some OBs, which I really enjoyed. Every time they saw somebody with a miscarriage, they blamed it on the chromosomes. Yeah. And people with, you know, multiple miscarriages, I guess that's just another bad one. Put, terrible luck, you know. And in, in my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, the standard secular OB guy doesn't really look at the other types of loss. And I guess a follow-up would be, how, how many people do you think have bad chromosomal uh, pregnancies one after another? It seems like that wouldn't be possible, really. St statistically, that seems very unlikely, you know. And then practically, it's very unlikely because when we see people that have had so many losses, we do a simple intervention, eliminate those other pieces of the four-part pie, they suddenly stop having losses. And then occasionally, we'll have another loss, and we'll often get tissue from that loss, study the chromosomes, and find that they were abnormal which is very comforting for the family because they know there was absolutely nothing that could be done. This was destined to happen from the moment of conception. And that really can provide a lot of solace and comfort. Um, but it can be extremely challenging. I would even argue it's more challenging to find someone that wants to take recurrent loss seriously than it is to find someone that wants to take infertility seriously. Chris, it sounds like 
low-hanging fruit. It sounds so easy the way you lay it out for an expert in OB-GYN to treat things this way. What is behind the fact that most people being trained in your profession are now not even learning about this? Yeah, I don't know, Tom. It is frustrating. It is simple. I mean, if it weren't simple, I wouldn't be able to understand it. <laughs> but, but it is low-hanging fruit. It's very simple. But I just don't know the answer. I wish I did. I, I think um, it comes from fundamentally your position on life. And if you think that a miscarriage represents a child that died, then you would want to do anything you could to prevent another child from dying. I mean, I don't think any of our listeners would disagree with that if it were a toddler. Uh, and for those of us that that fully understand that that is the loss of a child, then it, it's natural to want to do anything. Even if the things you want to do fly in the face of mainstream medicine sometimes, you're trying to save a life. Um, you sometimes break the rules when you're trying to save a life. And a great many of us feel that way. I just wish more did. Now, I know when you talk about this, when you've written about this, you make a statement that might make some other people bristle. I'm sure Andrew will catch on to this when I pose it, but that every couple is not called to biologic parenthood. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, isn't that, that, that's not an easy thing to say. Nobody wants to say that and nobody wants to hear that, right? Uh, people don't like you telling them they have cancer on the end of their nose, but you have to tell them that, don't you? Yes. you? You can't pretend that it isn't there. And so that is a reality. Children are not a right. Uh, they're a gift. And if they were a right, they would be property, uh, which is part of the sinful nature of in vitro fertilization that turns children into property that's frozen. But they're not a right. They're a gift. And um, that means that everyone's not called to receive that gift. Just like every couple's not, every man and woman's not called to marriage. Some people are called to single life. So everyone's not called to biological parenthood. And that's, that's a reality. But I, I find as hard as that is to say and to hear, couples take comfort when they hear that because they haven't heard that before. Because the reality is they may not get pregnant. Uh, and the IVF industry doesn't want to say that because there are too many millions of dollars at stake. If you take that to heart, it may mean if you don't get pregnant, you're going to walk away and be happy with it. But that may be the thing that you need to know above everything else. It's kind of a, a less tactful way than Tom asked. What, how, many, how many people kind of go through the treatment and it, it ends up that they're not called to biologic parenthood? How many people do we not have answers for? Yeah, I would say it is, it is not the norm. I would say it's definitely the exception uh, and not the rule. I can't give you a good statistic, but just anecdotally in my practice life, it's maybe four or five people a year because I can remember them. <laughs> so it's so uncommon that I can remember them. And, and I think other Creighton Technology docs would probably have similar experiences. So it's not unheard of, but it's not common. And then do you also have stories that those people years later you will hear got pregnant? Yeah, you know, as long as there is a sperm and an egg and a god, um, <laughs> there's going to be pregnancies. <laughs> and, and the other reality is, you know, our creator has a tremendous sense of humor. Um, you know, look at giraffes, if you don't believe me. Um, <laughs> and hippos and platypuses. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know, uh, every day we say, we see these crazy examples. And couples will often ask me, so it's impossible for us to get pregnant, right? Absolutely not. It is never, ever impossible. Don't paint our God in a corner. Uh, always leave room for the miraculous. So if there are couples who desperately want to be biological parents and you can't find a way to help them do that, what kind of support is available for them? Yeah, you know, not enough. Um, I think there's probably more now than there's ever been. There's certainly social media groups uh, that are supporting. Uh, most communities of size uh, will have often church-based support groups for couples struggling with recurrent loss and, uh, and infertility. But there's not nearly as many, I think, as, as we'd like to see. Um, but if you, you know, if you go to Amazon or a similar place and search for books, I think you'd be amazed at how many great books there are out there for couples um, that are struggling with this. Um, but I wish there was a lot more. And, you know, one of the sides of this that I think often doesn't get looked at is the side of the husband and the father. 
uh, so often, you know, the, the ladies are the ones going to the appointments. They have the really cool cycle. Guys are boring. Um, <laughs> what, what kind of advice would you have for husbands that are in this situation? Yeah, it's really tough for us. Uh, here We're sitting here, three men, three husbands. You know, it's probably not too big of a leap to say we're genetically wired to be fixers, right? You know, we want to kill the bear. And so if, <laughs> if something is threatening our spouse, we're wired to want to fix it, to want to kill it. Well, this bear is too big and you can't kill it. Uh, you can't even see it. And that can really leave a lot of us men feeling pretty helpless. And we react to that helplessness in different and sometimes not so healthy ways by pulling away, it's certainly an unhealthy response. But yet, unconsciously, men will often start pulling away. Men are often paranoid that they're actually the problem and don't want to be seen as a lesser of a man for being the problem. It's probably not too big a stretch to say we're kind of complicated when it comes to egos, we men. Um, <laughs> But I think the most important thing a man can do, and I always love to see it in my office, uh, as we're getting to difficult parts of the talk, like me saying all couples aren't called to biologic parenthood, I watch and I would say eight times out of 10, I see the husband physically move closer to his wife. Often he'll put his hand on her and move closer. And when I see that, A, it makes me feel good. Uh, <laughs> but I say to myself, that's a marriage that's going to survive because he's leaning in to this problem and not pulling away. Um, but I think that's probably the most important thing a husband can do is get closer, not further away. Hug the cactus, lean in. Very good. <laughs> She's not a cactus, but you know what I mean? It's, I didn't say that. <laughs> sometimes, yeah, sometimes it hurts. What are now, not just for spouses, but they're often going to be friends and they're well-meaning and they don't know what to do when one of their friends either has recurrent pregnancy loss or they can't get, you know, conceive. What are some good tips for how friends and family members can respond to such couples? Yeah, taking those kind of in reverse order. For, on the infertility side, it's a challenge because most people that are in the process of getting pregnant are of a similar age and they tend to have friends that are of a similar age. And when you're trying to be pregnant, everyone you know is pregnant. Yes. Um, and then you read a newspaper article about teenagers that walk past each other in the subway and they're pregnant. Um, and, <laughs> and that can be very painful to listen to. Um, I, I think what infertile women will often say is they, they don't want their female friends who become pregnant to feel bad telling them. They want them to tell them, uh, yes, call out the fact, I'm sorry that you're not pregnant, but I'm so happy that I am. And, and be honest with the friend who's struggling that you are happy about your pregnancy and don't try to hide that. On the loss side, oh my goodness, that's where really, that's where the injuries occur. You know, the best thing I think to say to somebody that's had a loss is, I'm sorry. You know, uh, that's what you would say to someone that had lost an older child or lost a spouse. You know, I, I'm sorry. Maybe I don't know how you feel, but I care for you and I care about you. And I'm sorry that you had a loss. I don't know much about it, but I'm really sorry. And, and I think that goes a long way. That's really all you have to say. Uh, certainly don't say you're young and it's okay. You'll be pregnant again. Don't worry about it. That will not help at all. Chris, how do our listeners find someone like you? Someone well, I, I certainly hope they can do better than that. Yeah. <laughs> How can they find someone better than you, Chris? Mm. Someone who respects their beliefs about human dignity and someone who will, you know, shoot the works regarding every moral option yeah. for having a live baby born. Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, there's some good resources, particularly for our Catholic listeners and even for our non-Catholic listeners to use these Catholic resources. But, you know, calling your diocesan office, a lot of dioceses have put together sort of fertility resource centers um, near to us in northeastern Indiana. For example, the, the Diocese of Toledo has a very advanced sort of fertility support office that will direct people towards faithful resources and help. Um, your, your parish, your parish priest can often help. Um, they're, they're busy people, we know that, and it's not all of their gifts, but they can usually direct you to someone that can help 
uh, if they can't. Uh, look up the Creighton Fertility Model website for resources. Go to the Couples to Couples League website, uh, and you can get connected uh, with resources there. Um, so you have to you have to dig a little bit, but you can find someone. For all of its fault, social media can be really helpful. Uh, and I'm thinking in particular about Facebook. Uh, there are so many support groups. If you just type NAPRO technology or Creighton fertility model or infertility, uh, you'll find support groups. And the way you know they're a good group is they're private. So you have to be invited in. So you have to ask to be let in. That just means someone filters out the quackery and people that are trying to sell you something. Um, but connecting with local and regional resources like that is a great place to start. Final comments in 30 seconds for our listeners about infertility, Chris. Yeah, I, I think the thing I would want to leave listeners with is you never, ever should feel like you have to choose between your faith and your fertility. I'm trying to be faithful to the teachings of the Holy Church, but if I don't have IVF, I can't get pregnant. That's wrong. Uh, don't listen to that. That, that isn't the truth. Uh, it's definitely not the voice of truth speaking. So don't feel as though you have to choose that. If you don't know what to do, it just means you don't know what to do. It doesn't mean there's not something to do. So call the Catholic Medical Association. They'll send you to someone good or at least get you started on that path. But you don't have to choose between your faith and your fertility. There's a better way. Awesome words to end on. We'll be back right after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. Yes, so this was about fertility rates across the world. And the first one was, out of 200 countries that were looked at in 2018, how many of them are replacing themselves, have a fertility rate over 2.1 children per woman? And the answer was 110 countries. Interestingly, out of 110, the U.S. ranked 145 because we were only at 1.7 children per woman. And then I asked, Niger had the highest fertility rate and South Korea the lowest. And what were their rates of children per fertile woman? Niger. It's the same as my family. Seven. It was actually 7.2. I don't know where that other point two is running around, but I'm sure they're here somewhere. And then South Korea was actually under one, 0 0.98 children per woman of childbearing age. Wow. Wow. So that's that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's... Isn't that interesting, though, if, if you think about it from America's standpoint, we're the wealthiest nation in the world, Yes, you know, the, the greatest standard of living, the greatest access to technology and education, and yet we can't even replace ourselves in, from a fertility standpoint. Right, without immigration. You, you'd think we would have the highest rate because we would think, this place is wonderful. We ought to get more people here. Yeah, to share it with. Seems yeah. like there's an inverse correlation there. Yes, <laughs> yes, there is. You know, Chris, one of the things um, before we end, I wanted to ask about, we had talked about some of the bad options for fertility treatment, including IVF. And one of the things that makes it wrong is that they make more babies, more embryos than they actually bring to birth. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, maybe we could highlight an option for them, is what happens to these embryos after they're made? There's there's really just a couple of choices. They usually put one or two, potentially three embryos in the uterus, um, and maybe they get eight to ten to twenty embryos as part of the the IVF cycle. Um, the the options for those other embryos, you might say, uh, are one they can just be discarded. Now those are humans that are just discarded. Uh, they could be donated to um, research. That's giving a human over to laboratory research. A, a third option, they could be donated to another couple. That's called embryo adoption. Uh, we've talked about that on the show before with some uh, bioethics experts in embryo adoption. Uh, and then there's probably a fourth option. Uh, they're not probably, there is a fourth option that's out there now. And Tom, you're a bit of an expert on this, so I'll let you talk about the Sacred Heart Guardians. Yes, uh, a f friend of mine from uh, actually elementary school and junior high who lives in the Twin Cities, let me know about this group founded by Laura Elm called Sacred Heart Guardians, and they're at sacredheartguardians.org. And their apostolate is simply the respectful burial of those, those embryos which are no longer frozen and therefore die. It really is one of the corporal works of mercy, burying the dead, recognizing them as dead, just as we recognize 
early pregnancy loss as deaths of very young children. And to date, they have been able to uh, respectfully bury 231 deceased embryonic children. And where do they get the, these these children? Well, it might be parents who realize that, hey, uh, I realize what I've done. I want something you know wholly done with their remains. Sacred Heart Guardians, in the name of the parent, can get the um, get those embryos. There are occasionally IVF clinics will where will allow Sacred Heart Guardians instead of um, having to pay medical waste costs, which is how those embryos are treated, they will bury them for them. Uh, but if you know somebody who has embryos that is not going to pay to keep them frozen, um, you know, inf indefinitely, look up sacredheartguardians.org. It's something new. It's something, it is pro-life because it's recognizing those little lives as human lives. You know, that's a great point, Tom. And I hope our listeners will look them up. You know, I feel compelled to also point out that um, it may sound as though we're beating up on couples that have used IVF. Uh, and, and we don't mean to do that at all. Um, none of your three co-hosts are without sin, I venture to say. Um, and uh, the children that are created by IVF are adopted sons and daughters of God, and they're holy as any children are. Uh, and so if you're listening and you've undergone IVF or your children have undergone IVF, please don't think for a moment that we're being judgmental on their decision to do that. In all likelihood, they made that decision with incomplete information, both from an ethical standpoint and a medical standpoint. Well said, Chris Stroud. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And as always, we'd ask you to please share the good news. We hope you think it's good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. Be sure to rate and review our show when you listen because it helps new listeners find us. And please send us questions or tell us how something you heard on Dr. Doctor changed your life. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.